This is Daniel King, and you're listening to George Fox Talks Wellness. I am so excited to have our guest today. Today we have Dr. Dan Ron. He's here today. He is a physical therapist and researcher. And uh, just recently he had an article that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at physical therapy versus glucocorticoid injections for the uh, osteoarthritis of the knee. And so we're really excited to have him here today. Um, just to start off, we're just going to start talking about osteoarthritis. And I just wanted to ask uh, Dan if he can maybe share with us maybe some of the symptoms or maybe just overall general things about arthritis, especially around the knee, that might be helpful for some people who are who are listening this morning or today. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for uh, uh, inviting me here to uh, to share. Um, I'm really excited to uh, to be here. So, you know, osteoarthritis, it, uh, it sounds a little, a little scary, a little ominous, but the, the reality is that uh, probably most of us will have uh, some measure of osteoarthritis at some point in our life. You know, it's, um, as one colleague refers to it, it's, it's, uh, it's somewhat like wrinkles on the inside. You know, we see the signs of aging on the outside, you know, our skin gets a little bit older. Those are signs of just wear and tear and in and, and time. And uh, on the inside, we see the same thing too. Uh, in particular, the joint surfaces. So anywhere where two joints come together, if you could, if you think about, you know, over the years, uh, many many days of of uh, life and activity, um, those things start to wear down a little bit. And in, in some people, in some situations, in some circumstances, that uh, wear down might be uh, come on a little bit faster than others. Um, the uh, so the challenging piece about that is that a lot of people have this wear down and don't have, in fact, most people have this wear down and don't really have any pain or symptoms or problems. They're completely asymptomatic. So that makes it a bit of a challenge. Um, so we identify that osteoarthritis is typically uh, symptomatic osteoarthritis. We, we uh, refer to as it causes symptoms. Um, and so those symptoms are typically you know, pain, you start getting a little bit of uh, pain, uh, usually maybe in the morning when you're a little bit stiffer, stiffness is another thing. Mm -hmm. So if you notice, man, once I get up and, and it's hard to take those first few steps, but after my joints loosen up a, a little bit, I can actually move a little bit better. I feel a little bit better. Um, but then that pain might get a little bit more severe. You might feel it as you're putting a little bit more load to the joint, like going up and down stairs or getting in and out of cars. Um, and, uh, so that leads obviously to uh, a much bigger problem where a lot of uh, individuals get to a point where they really can't do a lot of those things. And then what we call um, sort of end stage uh, disease and disease. Mm -hmm. I don't really like using the word disease because it, you know, it makes it sound like you've, you've uh, caught something really bad. Um, right. But that's just the, the technical sort of term for it. degenerative joint disease, knee osteoarthritis. Those are all synonyms. Um, and so many individuals go and uh, end up having to get a knee replacement um, down mm -hmm. the road. And so um, that's typically um, typically the symptoms is pain and um, and swelling probably in the, you know, start to come on in the fourth, 
fifth, sixth decade of life. Um, usually you don't feel it before that unless you've had maybe a uh, significant injury to your knee. Uh, so maybe if you've had an ACL injury in the past or you've uh, torn your meniscus, have had surgery on your knee, then you're at higher risk for uh, earlier onset of uh, arthritis. Yeah, you know, getting ready for our time today um, and just being a physical therapist myself, I know there's like over 30 million people who actually have arthritis. So I think that this topic is really important for a lot of people to hear. And I liked how you were um, framing it about the wrinkles inside and that a lot of people are asymptomatic, meaning they don't have any pain at all, even though they may have some changes inside. And some people do. And, you know, I think one of the interesting things is, is that people always think about the end of it, right? Like getting a surgery of some sort to try to fix it. But I loved your article. Um, because it gave us different things to think about, maybe prior to needing um, some type of surgery at the end of our time with the with the disease or the process. And I was hoping that maybe you could share with us um, a thing called clinical practice guidelines. Um, clinical practice guidelines are these guidelines that we are as as caregivers or providers use to give the best, um, I guess, consult for what's going on with the patient. And maybe um, Dan could kind of talk about clinical practice guidelines around NEOA and what it said about it. Yeah, sure. So clinical practice guidelines are usually put together by um, uh, organizations that are considered to be authorities in the field. And so mm -hmm. they consist of a panel, uh, usually a multidisciplinary panel of experts that um, assesses the literature. So what is all the evidence that we have, the clinical trials, the systematic reviews, and they try to take all the treatments that are available and they organize them into categories of recommended treatments, not recommended treatments, or in many cases, we just don't have enough uh, information to really say whether we recommend it or not. And so uh, some of those organizations are the American uh, College of Rheumatology, uh, the Osteoarthritis Research Society International, they both have their own clinical practice guidelines, which are very similar. Um, I work a lot within the Department of Defense. And so the, the Department of Defense uh, and the VA typically uh, partner together, the Veterans Affairs. And so they also have published clinical practice guidelines. And so they're guidelines to help direct care so that clinicians uh, working in, in the hospitals, the goal is that uh, in clinics that uh, it's a guideline to help them deliver the best quality, the best evidence care out there and sort of funnel um, doctors and nurses and physical therapists and ancillary staff in the right direction in terms of what is recommended and what is not recommended. And so a lot of times reimbursement will also align with uh, interventions that are recommended by clinical practice guidelines or you know, if you're if you're providing something that isn't recommended or that is specifically recommended against uh, the ACR, the American College of Rheumatology has several treatments that they rec recommend against, then, you know, that might influence uh, yeah, reimbursement and, and payment models. Yeah, and that's a that's a great um, explanation of clinical practice guidelines. I, I love that. I, I wish we had time to maybe talk about the things that we shouldn't be doing uh, because that might be a fun, fun podcast. But maybe just for uh, the time's sake, we'll talk about maybe a few things that we should be doing. And and it's funny, right? I love the title, um, physical therapy versus 
you know, glucocorticoid injections, right? Almost like it's like going against, but sometimes you could do both, but maybe not. And I thought that was really an interesting tension just from thinking about it. Cause I think a lot of patients, they also think about what are the options that they have, right? Should they go to physical therapy or should they get an injection of their knee? And I think that was really what I loved about um, the paper, but I think it has a real clinical application. When, when we think about patients, when we think about providers, not just physical therapists, but also primary care providers who are thinking what should be the next step when someone comes in and says, hey, I got these symptoms, what should we be doing next? And so maybe you can kind of share with us, was there, was physical therapy and injections part of the clinical practice guidelines that are out there for NEOA? So, so that's a good question. Um, and I think it's important because I'll tell you that when we, um, you know, when, when we set out to put this together and then when we were submitting this, a lot of the comments from the peer reviewers and, and uh, the physicians reviewing this was, you know, everybody gets, nobody only gets injection or PT, everybody gets both of these. And mm -hmm. um, the thing is our data um, and everything that we had looked up in, in the research shows otherwise. And injections are received by approximately uh, 50% of patients uh, getting uh, with, with knee osteoarthritis in the five years, anytime in the five years before they have uh, surgery, knee replacement surgery. And mm -hmm. physical therapy occurs maybe 20% of the time. Um, even less of for those that don't go on to have surgery. I think referral rates uh, in one of the largest studies that we have with uh, several million uh, encounters, referral rates are as low as 5% from uh, primary care settings to physical therapy. And uh, orthopedic surgery settings are a little bit better, I think, at closer to 11%. And so uh, they really aren't used very much at all. Um, they're underused. And so we wanted to really look at that and say, well, what is the reason for that? Maybe uh, there's a patient preference. Maybe there's a clinician preference. Um, the guidelines specifically recommend probably the core intervention that they all recommend is uh, exercise therapy. And we can come back to that uh, maybe a little bit later because I think exercise therapy, exercise in general and activity seems a little counterintuitive to a lot of patients. And so the idea is my, my uh, joint is breaking down and now you want me to exercise. And, and so that's, uh, that's always a challenge. Um, and there's some pretty good research behind why that's a challenge and why a lot of patients are resistance, resistant to probably the intervention that is recommended as, you know, the highest priority in all of the guidelines for uh, patients with, uh, with knee osteoarthritis. Yeah, you, um, you know, that's, that, go, go ahead, Dan. No, 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 I, I uh, go for it. Yeah, so I would say I would agree. I hardly, when I was, in, I used to have, a, have my own practice and I would hardly ever see anyone come in for knee osteoarthritis directly. It would be primarily, I would get it when it was a post-op for a total knee replacement and, or some type of surgical intervention. Um, so I would agree with you. And I love the fact that we're looking at, um, you know, this high level data to show, you know, what kind of encounters that they were have that physical therapy was really only utilized at 20%, maybe at the max, and sometimes as low as 5%. Um, and that injections were probably the thing that we were going to more. Um, again, looking at the evidence or the data, um, because you're right, I think a lot of people think that they're doing both. But sometimes when we are looking at our practice acts, or the way we're practicing, I think it sometimes shows us something different. And I loved how you guys clearly um, did that. 
it, in this in this paper is very clear to me that it was either physical therapy or injection. And that was the two two groups that you had. And I, I loved how clear that was. Um, can you maybe share with us like what we did, what you what was presented for physical therapy um, and what you would recommend in physical therapy? If there were some physical therapists listening or if we had patients listening, like what should what should happen in physical therapy? Yeah, so the goal is to, I mean, exercise and movement is uh, really the ultimate goal here because when, as soon as you start, stop moving, um, this is why there's a lot of other secondary health effects that are associated with knee osteoarthritis. We know comorbidities, um, sleep-related, uh, nutrition, your physical activity goes down, you know, you start gaining a little bit of weight, you don't sleep as good, um, exercise and, and mental health, depression is correlated, and so... When you stop moving because your knee hurts and so you want to stay off of your knee, it can lead to all of these secondary health effects. So we really, um, at the end of the day, we want to get people up and moving and uh, not see, um, you know, their knee pain as a, as a hindrance and a barrier uh, because a lot of times there's just it's more fear driven that it's going to get worse than it really is a substantiation that uh, it is going to get worse. And that keeps a lot of people from that. So. When you come in to see physical therapy, you know, we delivered a manual therapy approach, which um, we have shown to be effective in several different trials in the past. It's a it's an, an approach that really focuses on movement. And so you get the um, the joints moving. Sometimes the joints, um, you know, there's there's physiological motions and then there's accessory motions, which is the way that your joint uh, doesn't naturally move. And when you don't have a lot of activity, those areas can get a little bit stiff. And so the manual therapy almost helps them to exercise a little bit better. So it's not uncommon to uh, manually get the joints moving. So we put our hands on the joints, uh, the patellofemoral joint, the tibiofemoral joint, a couple different joints in the knees, uh, try to get the ankles loosened up and moving well, some good stretching. And then all of that is so that they can then participate in the exercises that we have, which uh, really focus on, on movement. And so... That is a, a, a core component of the, the physical therapy program. But I would say that that's a, that's a challenge. And so as primary care providers, as physical therapists, as anyone dealing with these patients, the, the biggest challenge we have is convincing patients that it's safe to do this. And there's a lot of evidence. There was a large uh, Cochrane review that explored sort of these ideas and patients that were waiting for um, – uh, their uh, knee replacement. And so they had um, all of these different barriers that uh, prevented them from wanting to exercise. And if you think about it, these things are, uh, I mean, these are real concerns that we have to learn to be able to address. Because if we can't get past these cognitive barriers of this is going to get worse, um, you know, we, we can't really, we can tell the patient to exercise all they want, but then they're not going to go home and really do it. So it was another study in the clinical orthopedics and related research. It was really interesting. These patients were waiting um, to have surgery. So they had essentially, um, you know, not had the success that they wanted with uh, rehabilitation, but they were asked about this and, and they identified. So the researchers identified all these different identity beliefs. So the patients all thought that their bone, that their, their knee was bone on bone, they called mm -hmm. it. And uh, they believed that that bone on bone was caused by, wear and tear and that um, loading the knee joint would further damage this vulnerable joint. So there's these consequence beliefs, these causal beliefs that 
their pain would deteriorate and get worse over time. Um, so, so naturally, physical therapy and exercise are only going to increase the, the pain. They're not going to replace the, the lost knee cartilage. So the only thing that makes sense rationally is to have surgery, you know, and so nothing else really makes sense. And, and that's because we don't have time always to sit down, especially in primary care. I know in the health system I work with, we don't have a lot of time to sit down and, and, and explain and dialogue and sit with the patient with these in these and challenge these beliefs about vulnerability. And so, um, we, you know, it's not surprising that they don't see any other option other than getting a new joint as being able to, um, uh, address uh, address their symptoms and really ultimately fix the problem. And I struggle. I'm a physical therapist, and I and I do this research, and I still I struggle with my neighbors that are good friends that don't know what I do. Like you know, family that uh, you know, uh, it 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 doesn't matter. Like I struggle. Like I see these are people that know me, that trust me, and these are really just ingrained beliefs that uh, make it really challenging. And so I think we've got to come up with ways to help change the narrative and help them understand, you know, the, the potential that's there if they want to put the time and, and, uh, and effort into this. Yeah. Such good things. And I'm thinking about the narrative and how we in healthcare can start helping with that. Right. Cause I agree with you completely that the wear and tear almost feels uh, counterintuitive to actually do exercising or exercise in general. And I love how manual therapy is not just looked upon as something passive, but it's something looked upon as active to get them prepared to move, um, to move. And it is moving a joint and is moving a part of the body, like almost like stretching. And I think that putting your hands on the person too helps confirm that you're with them and that you're, you're, you know, kind of helping with those obstacles versus just putting them on a, on an exercise equipment, which may feel um, threatening to some of them, especially if they're believing that there's wear and tear in their joint versus someone examining them as well as moving the joint. Because I know that there's assessments or assessment that's happening while we are doing manual therapy with the patient. And I mean, how many times have we have we um, seen patients open up as we are doing manual therapy and continuing on that conversation about pain, stiffness, um, why it's swollen, and then even movement, you know, like, is this going to hurt me and what's going to happen? So I think that um, manual therapy in this case is one of those things that actually decrease obstacles for them to start moving and feeling more confident um, in it. And I know that, you know, this is a little off topic, but I kind of want to share or maybe ask you about this whole understanding of therapeutic alliance. Um, I think that what you're talking about as these obstacles is kind of like these beliefs or identity. And I think one of the things that maybe we're recognizing that might be important is this therapeutic alliance or this trust that you have with a care provider. And I, I know that in the study, I don't think you guys studied that or looked at that, but is that something that you think is important as you're kind of going through um, a program? Is this trust between uh, the client and then also the provider, especially when you think to yourself that there might be real damage that's in the knee? Yeah, of, of course. I mean, sometimes uh, the trust in the provider is one of the most important things that therapeutic alliance, um, you know, it's just a technical term for, you know, I mean, you know, when you go see a doctor or you go see a mechanic, I mean, you love the one that uh, you feel like you make a connection with that really understands you, that listens to you. Um, 
I mean, they could almost not even know what they're talking about, but you, they just made a, you know, you made a strong connection and you're drawn, you want to work with that individual. You feel like they care about you. Um, so, you know, we, at the end of the day in medicine and across the board, we're trying to change behavior. And I think, um, there's a, there's a psychology to behavior change, you know, information alone doesn't do that. We know that's, that, that has very little to do with, uh, changing behavior. And so it's not only building trust, but, um, it's engaging. Our communication skills are so important. It's engaging with patients, um, in a way that it creates change. And so, um, we're doing a lot of that. We have a, a study with, with health, health coaches and, uh, chronic pain, trying to implement these changes. And, and there's so much that comes down to the communication and how we talk with patients and, you know, how often do we just give them, uh, an exercise program, but really, um, so I use this analogy that like, you know, um, you, well, we know already from, from the literature that like you, um, the patient has to want to change. That's the first step, right? When you look at the stages of change, like they have to say, I want to change. We never really assess a patient's willingness to change before we already tell them, this is what you need to do. And I think that's one of the most, the, the critical steps. Um, my wife, who's a, uh, a counselor always says, you know, you can't care more than the client does, you know, like they have to, they have to care. Like you can't care more than they do. Um, and so, uh, we have to, just like if I'm building a house, I have to, I don't just start building the house because I, I want to know how much is it going to cost me? Like I need to sit down and say, all right, here's what it's going to cost. You know, am I ready to invest in this? You know, plan it out. It's a big decision. And I think we need to sit down sometimes with patients and say, you know, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is there's great potential to get better with this exercise program. Lots of people do. The bad news is potentially that this is going to take some work and this is what it's going to require. And so I just want to know, is this something that you that you are interested in? Do you you know, is this something of interest to you realizing that this is the cost associated with it? And so have those discussions early, pitch that with the patient, talk about what it means, talk about their unique barriers. What would prevent you from doing these exercises? What does your work schedule look like? figure out whether they even want to change. And maybe you might get to the point where you feel like I can't not let them do this, but again, you can't care more than they do. Like, okay, well, you know, um, I respect the fact that you maybe don't think this is right for you, but I just want you to think about these things. Maybe when you come back next time, they've thought about it, you know, keep trying to push towards that point where they're ready to make the change. And then you can take them on this journey. But behavior changes is extremely challenging. And I mean, everyone believes that exercise is good for them. That's not a problem. Everyone believes that exercise has tremendous value. It's you get home, you have a busy day, then you're getting into bed and it's like, oh, I forgot to do my exercises today. I'll do them tomorrow. And then the same thing happens. There's always good intentions behind this. It's just the coming up with a plan so that you can actually change behavior. And this, this, you know, this has to do with diet or going, you know, exercising regularly, all of these things require planning. Uh, they don't just happen because we give somebody a handout and say, hey, do these exercises at home. So we got to spend a little bit more time, I think, helping these individuals make the changes, making sure that they want to change. But a therapeutic alliance is is a really important piece of this to, to build their trust and then 
point them in, in, in the right direction. Yeah, I like, I like that a lot. And I like how you use that to talk about behavior change. And maybe then we can talk about the other um, other um, inter- intervention side, which is the injections, right? Because it wasn't just one injection that they were able to receive. They get to receive a few times because I think they saw the, the provider um, or the rheumatologist or the PM&R physician um, on, I think, fourth or ninth and twelfth month or something like that, Dan. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I know they were able to see them and they were able to get three injections at a time um, during those um you know, during the times that they saw the provider in total. So, you know, maybe we can talk a little about about that, about injections and and um, maybe more specifically, just, you know, when did they decide to do an injection and when did they not? And I know we're both not physicians, but um, you are a co-author of this paper. <laughs> and so and I just wanted to just maybe have the listeners make sure that they know that we're thinking about it from the other side as well, too. Yeah, injections are they can provide you know this immediate pain relief they're cheaper usually just right there in the visit um and uh they're just easy like you can just get it right there in the visit so um so you know there are some benefits when you're making that decision um i just want to give a real quick overview of the trial because we've kind of talked about the couple little pieces there just to, to put everybody on the same page but essentially we randomized patients that came in for knee osteoarthritis they were randomized to either go to physical therapy or to get a steroid injection. Um, and then we would follow them for a year. So the physical therapy, uh, they received roughly about eight, eight to 10 sessions. The injection, uh, was supposed to be one injection. Um, but, uh, based on normal clinical practice, people can come back and get more injections. So we wanted to make it pragmatic, meaning that it sort of represents real world, uh, scenarios. So, that's the other thing with physical therapy is patients might come back. We provided an opportunity for a booster. So, uh, but what we mean by that is you come back and check in at four months and nine months and Hey, how you doing? How are things going? Maybe they get one or two more sessions of PT if they wanted it. Um, we, um, look at their exercises, make sure they're doing them well. Nobody's forced to do any of these things. It's just offered. And the same thing with an injection, you check in with, uh, the, the, the physician, Four months later, hey, or how are things going? Uh, do you, you know, and they would, if the patient asked for it, you know, that injection was great. I'd love to have another one. Uh, then, then they would do that. And so that's how things happen in the real world. And we wanted to sort of uh, mimic that. Well, th- over the course of the year, our primary outcome, which is a standardized measure that measures pain, function, and stiffness in the knee, uh, showed a significantly, uh, a significantly better improvement in pain, stiffness, and function in uh, patients that had received the physical therapy uh, component uh, intervention compared to those that had the steroid injection. Both had improvements, but the PT was substantially better. At the end of the year, four people in the injection arm had surgery. Three of those had their knee re- knees replaced, and one had an arthroscopic procedure, and none of the patients in the physical therapy arm had received any surgery. And so, when we go back and look at the interventions that people received, um, it seems again easy and and uh, you know to just get that injection, give me the injection, I'll feel better, I'll be on my way. But the fact is that the mean number of injections received was like two point three or maybe two point seven. So almost everyone ended up needing more than one injection. So it it, it didn't provide long term pain relief. They needed another injection, and I think about 19 
uh, individual, maybe maybe 20% of individuals ended up getting referred to physical therapy um, um, anyways. Maybe it was a little bit higher, but there was um, uh, quite a few people that ended up going to physical therapy anyways. And so the idea is that maybe that short-term relief and pushing off PT, you know, um, doesn't, isn't a better uh, investment. Um, we also did, we just published in JAMA and Network Open, like I think last month, we did a cost effectiveness analysis because it's really important to then assess, okay, you get a little bit better with injection, you get quite a bit better with uh, physical therapy. But, um, and again, you can't discount the fact that the PT sessions cost more, not just money, but I've got to come in, maybe I've got to find childcare, maybe I have to get out of work a few extra times. So we wanted to know if is the cost, the extra cost that was spent on the PT, is it really worth it? And so you do what are called these cost effectiveness analysis where, um, you know, we use the healthcare economist and uh, that really breaks down these willingness to pay models and the quality of life years that you get from the intervention. And uh, so we found that uh, with all these additional simulations, the primary one and all these multiple simulations that um, getting PT, even though it was a little bit more expensive at the beginning, over the course of the year, because of, of how it reduced your, um, you know, less people had surgeries and, um, you know, other people had additional injections and all that, it was a cost effective intervention compared to uh, steroid injection. So, you know, I think it, it helps to think about the long term picture and not just, hey, what is the benefit that I'm going to get right now? Um, and so if I can put in a little bit of time and effort into PT, my quality of life might be quite a bit better at the end of this year compared to just getting the uh, injection and, uh, and not getting PT. So um, injections, while they uh, can provide some short-term pain relief, there, there's also recently been uh, several studies that have been starting to challenge um, you know, what we know about them. And um, you know, it's not that they're really... Uh, dangerous, but maybe they're not as safe as we thought. And so there's some studies that show that they might actually uh, increase the risk of uh, getting a knee replacement. So in one large uh, study published in the journal Bone and Joint Surgery, um, they, uh, this large cohort, those that had an injection had a 9.4% uh, uh, greater increase in risk for uh, having a knee replacement at the nine-year follow-up compared to those that didn't have an injection. Um, the other thing is that a lot of, um, and again, a lot of physicians that push back on this saying like, everybody gets these together. It doesn't really make that much difference. Um, the reason that we didn't, and they asked us why we didn't compare the two, like why not look at the additive value of, why can't I do both? Right. Um, and we're not saying you can't do both, but there are two trials that were published, um, one in JAMA Internal Medicine, I believe, and the other one in, in uh, Plus One or Plus Medicine that... Um, looked at combining injection with exercise or injection with uh, PT versus uh, just exercise alone. And there was no better, in the, the outcomes weren't any better or any different in the group that had an injection in addition to the exercise. So it, you know, you have a little bit of risk, maybe you're degenerating the cartilage a little bit more, but it didn't actually add any greater pain relief or function uh, compared to those that just had the injection with, or just had, sorry, the exercise without the injection. And so based on two, two studies, um, you know, in, in high impact, uh, high tier journals, uh, it just doesn't seem uh, 
the evidence at least doesn't substantiate the practice of, of delivering both of those. So let's give you an injection and then you'll feel better and you'll be able to tolerate physical therapy. In our trial, at the short term, so at four weeks, which we consider the short term uh, follow up, the, the pain relief was identical in the group that had the injection versus the group that had the physical therapy. So there was no mm. additional benefit or greater pain relief. Uh, exercise is very, very powerful if done the right way uh, to help uh, reduce pain. And so I think we need to, you know, um, to, to know that and, and not, you know, belittle the, uh, the effects that it can bring to the table. Um, that was a great summary, actually, of the paper, but also two different pathways that we're all hoping for the same results, which is decreased pain and decreased stiffness. And I just thought that you did such a great job summarizing that. Um, I want to maybe ask um, a question that's um, about exercise. Um, you made a statement that if we do the right kind of exercise, right, because there's lots of different kinds. Yeah. And you know, right. Um, what it was in your tr in your trial, uh, what was some of the exercises that you would recommend or that was recommended for the for the for the patient who had arthritis? Uh, we know that manual therapy was something that they received. And then it sounds like, you know, I loved how you used the word pragmatic, meaning real day, um, you know, kind of what we do. But what was in general, maybe some of the things that um, that was done in in kind of in the script of how to do exercises with this patient? Well, I would say the first thing is you want to promote physical activity with your patient. So, you know, if they're going out um, walking, um, they've got, you know, an elliptical machine, a bike, a bike is great. It increases a little bit more of your knee flexion. Um, so that's all supplementary. In fact, I tell my patients, I almost try to make that be a bigger piece of this because like, look, you're here in the clinic with me 45 minutes out of your maybe three times a week. You know, you're you're not in here. 99% of the time you're not with me. So what are you doing in that other 99% of the week is really going to matter a lot if uh, and you really need to focus on that. But, you know, with movement, um, we're thinking about the, the, the activities that people start, you know, um, they say that, you know, you don't, um, you don't stop moving because you get old, you get old because you stop moving, you know, and, and so we see this typical decline. And one of the biggest things is once you lose um, I mean, quad strength in particular has been uh, is a is a, a a direct predictor of morbidity down in life because as you start losing your quad strength, you start losing the ability to move. Specifically, once I sit down, I can't get back up again. You know, and I noticed this with my uh, my late grandparents, my grandmother. You know, I could watch she get to the point where she couldn't get up on her own anymore. Um, and then when you can't do that, you're not going to get up and walk around. So now you become less active as your body gets used more than it just, it just deteriorates. That's a natural progression. So, you know, we want to move our bodies and use them so that they're, they stay healthier longer. And so, uh, a big thing is, you know, quad strength, quad motion, squatting, cause that's just such a functional movement, going to the bathroom, getting in and out of bed, up and down from chairs into the cars, when you lose that function, you lose your independence, you lose your ability to move. And so we focus a lot on uh, squats, getting that full, your knee gets uh, very stiff. And so sometimes you don't get that full extension when you're able, you can't fully lock out your knee, but you really need that to have, um, to have a good gait where you're not using lots of energy. 
So we really focus on getting that end range extension, being able to get good, uh, you know, squatting motions, getting those that quad engaged, getting that quad muscle movement, um, getting the ankles uh, to bend a little bit better, dorsiflexion, so that you can get a little bit more movement. There's uh, stiffness in the calves, you know, strengthening the hips, all of these things that really help the individual move. So that's one piece, but a lot of our patients would come in and warm up maybe on the stationary bike for 10, 15 minutes before we get into our manual therapy uh, program. And then, the, and then after the manual therapy, the exercise and a lot of, and this is a very uh, common thing that people would say is, you know, I feel like I can do my exercises better after the manual therapy. So like, I feel like, you know, my joints move a little bit better. I can, I, I get more, it's almost like they get more out of the exercise, you know, when it's uh, done in conjunction with uh, with the manual therapy uh, intervention. So there's a lot, I would say, there's lots of different exercises. There's probably not like this is the right one. Um, but if you uh, can just get moving, you know, uh, people get into the pool. If you if you have access to a, a program like that, um, then that's great. If uh, I try to get people in low impact things at home, like uh, or at the gym, elliptical machines or even just walking on a treadmill. There's a couple systematic reviews that even show that running doesn't. Uh, make your, your, your doesn't lead to increased degeneration or symptoms. And so now if patients haven't been runners, just like with anything, I'm not recommending that they go out and run, but I have patients that are runners. They love to run and they don't even have a lot of symptoms, but now they're like scared to continue running. And with them, I share with them the evidence and say, listen, you know, you're a runner, you love to run. Um, there's, there might even be a protective effect of running if you run uh, from the limited evidence that we have that long distance runners maybe even have a protective effect. And so, man, I'm not going to stop you from running. And I don't, I don't think that's uh, the, the health effects that you're getting from that are, are so good for you. Um, you know, keep up, keep up with that running. You're, you're doing what you're doing, but we've got to get more than what's the right exercise is coming into the space with the patient and figuring out what can work for them mm. because everyone's a little bit different. Everyone's at a different level. And so um, let's again, to change that behavior, we have to figure out like what works with them, what works in their setting, what are their barriers, what are their restrictions, and then work through those because patients will come up with those. And that's where you use, you know, things like our health coaches use motivational interviewing to try to really get at that problem is to figure out, um, Okay, here's your perception of why you can't do these exercises. Let's break that down a little bit and figure out how we can get to a, to a point where, where you can do them. Um, and that might be just as important as the types of exercises or the prescription is like figuring out what exactly they can do and starting with that and working with that. Yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, we're, we're so fortunate here at, at our university to uh, make sure, and I know a lot of other universities are doing this too, uh, Dan, but incorporating motivational interviewing in their process of education now. I know when I went to school, um, you know, 20 years ago, I didn't get any motivational interviewing. I sure know how to do some really good um, therapeutic exercises as well as manual therapy, which is great. But now, you know, to see the curriculum change, to understand that it is a behavior change and that our communication skills do matter with our technical skills. And I think that's really been fantastic to watch I also love the fact that um, you shared with um, just how you you really need to get the um, meet the patient where they're at. I think that's a huge uh, reason why people should consider coming to physical therapy. 
is to meet, um, to make sure that they're being met where they're at. The other thing too is um, I think about people who might get sore and get DOMS, which delay onset of you know muscle soreness or even a flare-up, right? And knowing that they have a physical therapist who they're seeing, who understand, who understand that and can help um, them work through that. I think those are all real important uh, reasons to actually see a physical therapist. So, you know, those are all things when people ask me, like my neighbors, I, you know, I recommend it for those things and, and I explain why and that my hope is that they will learn how to exercise. That's important to them. Right. And that um, that they don't just do that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say that's that's a great point. Um. I mean, I've met people that have had bad experiences with physical therapy. And I would say, um, you know, if you have had a bad experience or this is what happens uh, commonly, someone exercises and they haven't exercised in a long time. And all of a sudden they get really motivated. You know, um, they watch Chariots of Fire. I don't know, whatever they get like. They're like, all right, I'm going to change my life. Um, Yeah, (laughs) I'm going to I'm going to and they haven't in a long time. So they go out and they do something that they remember they were able to do 10 years ago. And uh then they're, they come back and they're really sore. Maybe they injure themselves a little bit. And so the connection that they make is, oh, I went out there, I tried this, you know, and it got worse. Exercise must not be right for me because I've had patients tell me like, no, I can't do exercise. Exercise isn't right for me. And uh, that's just simply not true because exercise exists on, on, a, on a huge spectrum of very, very intense to very, very minimal. There is some sort of exercise that everyone can do. And so if you've heard me speak on this before, you know, the analogy that I always use um, is just it's simple to uh, let's say you're taking antibiotics and you have an infection. Right. If you you know that um, we know that antibiotics works for for the right types of infections, it's really, really powerful. But if you take too little of a dose, it's not going to do what it's intended to do. And so uh, you only take the partial dose, then you make it resistant and it maybe doesn't kill, uh, you know, it doesn't kill the infection. But you and if you take too much, if you just are like, I'm just going to take a whole bunch of this, like you can get really, really sick because it becomes Mm. toxic. Mm. But nobody says, well, antibiotics are no good because they didn't help me. It's all about the dose. The dose is what matters Mm. and makes all the difference. And it's the same thing with exercise. If I underdose and take too little, I'm not going to get the therapeutic effects and I'm going to think, oh, you know what? This doesn't work. And if I try to go out and do too much and I get injured and hurt, I'm also going to think, oh, exercise doesn't work. And this is where I think, you know, uh, a good physical therapist can help you get the dosing just right and mm-hmm. make sure that you're not doing too little um, so that you don't have uh, the right therapeutic effect. You haven't met that threshold where you're actually getting benefit and also that you don't do too much because you're, you know, really zealous and you're ready to change the world and they want to get you there eventually, but let's like, let's work up to it. And so I think dosing is uh, incredibly important. And that's where a trained, you know, uh, professional can really, really help you get that dosing right and make sure it's really effective. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I think sometimes our dosing is very equivalent to pacing, right? I mean, I think that's maybe it might be a little different, but I, I try to think about that, like, you know, dose it, but also seeing the pace of like, how a person wants to be. And I think that's always, you know, very interesting to me about, you know, the trajectory of things. And that's why, honestly, I'm, I keep going back to the article. I just love the trajectory of the two different interventions, you know, and I think one was, I definitely thought for sure the pain would reduce 
in the injections. I did, you know, and I doubt for sure that the PT would be sore, especially in the first four weeks. And when I saw it equally equal the same, I was very surprised by that. But, you know, like that's the information. I guess the last thing I want to ask you is you guys followed these, this uh, the study for a year. And can you maybe I, I know you kind of already done it, but maybe kind of summarize like what you saw after a year. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, you do have some crossover. Um, you have patients that, um, you know, had multiple injections, I think, at the end of the year. You know, we didn't really have exit interviews or anything like that. But the in both groups, the, the pain and function improved. And then it's at four weeks. And then it stayed about the same. Uh, it never got back to the levels that it was at the, at the beginning. But the mm-hmm. group that had the physical therapy you know, was just substantially um, better in terms of the amount of pain that they had had improved and the amount of physical function. And so um, it's interesting. I'd, you know, it's interesting to share these results with the physicians and ask them their thoughts, you know, and, and does this help or change or influence your thoughts about how you're going to uh, maybe recommend these interventions to um because that's the other part too, you know, to changing practice has so many moving parts. Uh, how do we take these results and, and disseminate them and have engaging conversations with everybody that's in the healthcare system to kind of understand, uh, you know, understand this model and to ensure that patients are getting good physical therapy. You know, if, if you went out and had two sessions and somebody did a bunch of cupping or something on your knee, you came back and said, hey, physical therapy failed. It didn't work. Um, you know, our, our, physicians, our surgeons stepping in and saying, um, you know, hey, I, you know, I know that you failed PT, but uh, what did you actually do in PT? Uh, what did you guys work on? And then if it doesn't meet the bar for quality uh, physical therapy, maybe uh, push back and say, no, you know, let's wait until you've actually had a good course of physical therapy. Um, so I, I don't know, you know, other than what was in the paper, we saw those changes. Um, I mean, those are things that I'm interested in. We didn't have the ability, you know, we didn't have any exit uh, interviews, um, you know, just conversations, you know, here or there with physicians and surgeons that uh, were interested. A lot of them were really, really surprised uh, at the data. That's probably the biggest thing. Most of them were so surprised at the data that shows that most patients uh, only get one or the other and that such few people get PT. Um, And so I don't know if maybe patients say that they got PT because they just did some exercise and went to the gym. And then when uh, the doctors hear that, they're like, okay. And they kind of check the box and Mm -hmm. they think PT has been done. And so they move on. Um, I don't know what, what explains the discrepancy between what they believe is a lot of people go to PT and then the data shows that very few people go to PT. So um, it's really interesting, but hopefully, you know, uh, these things, these things don't change overnight. Hopefully it's just another, uh, step, you know, on the ladder, helping us get up there to, uh, to, to improve overall care for everybody. Yeah. And I think another thing too, is like, um, the fact that it was published in a journal that wasn't a physical therapy journal, I really felt like that was really powerful, Dan. I'm not, you know, that's one of the reasons why I asked you to come on, um, you know, beyond it being a prestigious, probably the most prestigious journal. I just love the fact that you're always um, looking to publish uh, on a non-PT journal, not because you're not pro-physical therapy, because I know you do a lot for the profession, 
but I also know that you're really a researcher that's looking for, you know, the, the, the research rigor and you're publishing at the highest level. And the fact that it was in New England Journal of Medicine, I've had more conversations about that piece with other providers who are, you know, primary care providers, orthopedists and PM&R about that um, journal article than probably any other journal article that, um, that I can think of to date. And so I just want you to know, I think one of the things is also visibility about and rigor um, about it, about what we're doing and, and the um, experiments or the research projects we're doing. And I just felt like it was, again, I think a lot of the thing I've heard back to was um, they thought they were referring a lot more to physical therapy, number one. And then they really were um, surprised with the Womack scores and the differences that they saw. Uh, the other thing that's come up that you've already brought up that I'd like to maybe talk about before we close is the cost. Because a lot of people think that physical therapy would be more expensive. But when I looked at the cost analysis um, in the paper, it looked like it was very, very um, similar. And it looks like you look deeper into it um, in your other article. And we'll put all these links um, for the articles in the YouTube so that um, people who are interested in reading um, articles, which I love to do. I mean, to talk about that's one of my to do things is to read articles. Uh, we'll make sure we put those two links for those papers. But maybe talk about the cost, right? I, I know you did, but I just want to make sure that we were clear about that because most people would definitely think that the PT would probably be more more, more costly, but in the paper it says it was about the same. So yeah. is that true? Yeah. And uh, appreciate all the, the, the kudos and uh, you know, all, all that, but I, you know, these things, I just, uh, I'd be remiss without saying these, this, that uh, these things never happen, you know, in silos and isolation. And like my team of, co-authors and Gail Dial, the lead author on the mm -hmm. New England Journal of Medicine one, who's been a mentor for a long time. I mean, they all played such a huge role in their vision, you know, to see this through. Mm -hmm. um, so this this definitely um, uh, was a team effort um, and and should be acknowledged. Um, but in terms of the cost, so the, 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 the thing is, if we look, we didn't just look at the cost of the, uh, how much does the one injection for the for the intervention in the trial costs and how much does these eight sessions of PT cost? We looked at all knee-related care in the following year. So anytime you went back to see a doctor uh, or anybody for knee-related care, we could track that in our health system and there's a cost associated with that. So we really wanted to know over the, co over the course of a year, all of the medical care that you're seeking for your knee is the cost of that care uh, higher, lower, different in one group versus the other? And so it, those costs were the same in, in both groups, even though the injection was a little bit higher. And that's probably because in the injection group, you know, that's where all the surgeries happen. So that does inflate the cost a little bit. But you can't remove those people because that's um, that's really uh, that that's. A potential consequence of, you know, heading down the route and the fact that nobody in the PT arm had uh, any surgery uh, is really interesting. And so and the fact that they had additional visits for additional injections. So as you can see, and some a lot of those ended up going to PT outside the study. They were kind of referred because we didn't stop that referral process. So, you know, you might think I'm just getting this injection and then I'm done. But really what it turns into is I'm coming back for more visits. I'm coming back for more injections. Maybe eventually I'll get referred to PT anyways. You know, I might have a surgery. And so it's not as clean um, as it might seem to you when it's being posed as an option 
in the practice. Some people, it is. Some people get injections and they're good, but there's a lot of people that, or they're good for a while. I know a lot of people that were like, man, that was great. But then, you know, six months later, I need another one. Or some people that say, man, the first two were great, but then I, and I've gone back for like three more, but none of them have gave me that, that, that relief that I got with that first one. They just don't do anything anymore for whatever reason. So, um, again, they work for some people. I think it's some great immediate pain relief in some individuals, but, um, I think that when it comes at the expense of I'm going to do this and not exercise, or I can, you know, it's a quick fix. You're just pushing the goalposts down the road a little bit further. And, uh, we need to have those conversations with our patients about what, what do you need to do here? What do you want to do? What's the long-term picture here for you? Like, let's come up with something that, that works in the long term and uh, keeps you going instead of only something that works uh, right now. So yeah, cost wise, it was to the health system, at least it was no, uh, no greater cost uh, to the insurance payers and to the health system, regardless of which route you went at the end of the year. That's great. Yeah. I, I like that goalpost being pushed away or pushed downstream more. And I'm hoping that, <clears throat> that this, um, I don't know, the information that we're receiving will allow um, people to have more opportunities to um, try physical therapy. I think that's one of the things that why, you know, primary care, physical therapy, ED, physical therapy, all of these other maybe different uh, ways to get physical therapy is important. But I'm hoping that this will also open up those states who don't have direct access or if you do to get the um, more than the word out, because I want it more to be a word than actually the information. I mean, it's real information. It's not just, you know, something that's that that it was just, you know, some expert opinion. Right. It's a research that's been shown. And so my hope is that it will give people different options um, to try physical therapy for knee osteoarthritis um, to see if it could be beneficial for them. So with that said, is there any other things, Dan, that you want that you think that maybe we want to say before we close today? I always like to give this to my guests because I know there's a lot that's been said today. And um, I really also appreciated you um, giving the credit to your team and other co-authors on the paper. I think that just shows um, not just humility, but the truth of like how much work it is, but also um the power of working together on, on a projects. So I, I, I also want to acknowledge that with your co-authors and your team to thank them for their hard work and um, their um, just continue um, um, passion for this topic and other topics that I know you're researching. So, you know, any last summaries? Thank you. Um, no, I just, I, I appreciate the opportunity to get, you know, this information out there. I would tell, um, you know, physical therapists out there that, uh, you know, uh, read up on this evidence, get, you know, learn these skills, um, you know, try to apply them, implement them in your practice. I would tell uh, the referral sources and primary care providers to really think about, you know, um, the strength of these findings and how this, what kind of conversations they can have about referring patients um, to physical therapy and to, um, be mindful of the type of physical therapy that patients are getting to, to make sure that it's good quality uh, physical therapy. And then I would, you know, tell patients that, um, man, it's hard. It is hard out there. Uh, it's confusing. There's lots of information that's coming to you from all different directions. But, um, you know, look for different sources. You know, if you hear one thing, maybe you get a second opinion. Um, man, we, we really want to make things uh, 
you know, patients. I mean, that they're our family members, our friends, our neighbors. You know, we have lots of people that we just um, we, we really want the best uh, for them. And I think there's a lot of there. There's a lot of really good stuff out there for you and a lot of good to offer. You just have to look around, be interested and uh, also be willing to put in maybe a, a little bit of the work that's required um, to get to that to that point. But I think it's it's possible for a lot of people. Well, thank you so much for your time and thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Dan. This has been a production of George Fox Digital. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to George Fox Talks on Apple, Spotify, or whatever you're streaming on. Check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks, where we have videos, publications, and more. And we're also on YouTube at youtube.com slash georgefoxtalks. <laughs>